Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Tribes on the Edge follows filmmaker Celine Cousteau as she returns to the Brazilian Amazon after a fateful email from Beto of the Marabu tribe who beckons her back to help tell his people's story. Celine, who comes from a lineage of renowned explorers, ventures into the heart of the jungle to explore the health crisis and the threats to land and human rights of the indigenous people of Vale do Javari. From a history of invaders bringing devastating disease to ongoing illegal activities, to the alarming dismantling of all of the protections of their land and human rights by the government, these indigenous communities are fighting to protect their home, a land critical to the ecological balance of our planet, and as a result, they protect us. Tribes on the Edge is Celine's first full feature-length documentary, and she joins us today to talk about her remarkable work as well as this remarkable film. The film, again, is called Tribes on the Edge, and we're joined today by director Celine Cousteau. Celine, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you. Let's get the basic questions out of the way in terms of what was it that prompted, well, I see where you got this email from from Beto, but how did it become the documentary we know as Tribes from the Edge? Um, I, I didn't know it was going to be this at all. I met Beto and uh, was in the Valle de Javari Indigenous Territory in the Brazilian Amazon the first time in 2007 doing another documentary called Return to the Amazon uh, for PBS with my father and brother. That was in 2007. And in 2010, I get this email from Beto asking me to tell their story. You know, I, I, when I first met the indigenous people of that territory, what's, what struck me most, because what I was hearing when I was there and doing interviews during a, a meeting that they were having was all around health issues. Yeah. And they um, expressed having 50 to 80% hepatitis rate, hepatitis A, B, C, and Delta, 50 to 80%. The, the healthcare workers were there meeting with all the tribes and basically told them, we, we actually um, have our funding cut. We're not going to be able to help more. We're actually going to have less support. And the devastation of people who are dying to hear that actually we're, we're bringing less support really hit me hard. And hepatitis is preventable and treatable. Of course, when you have you know, cases of malaria and then cases of hepatitis, your liver stops functioning. But in terms of the preventative measures, yes, it's complicated to bring preventative measures there, but I, I was determined to do something else. And I spent a year trying to put together a program. It was a really difficult decision I made at the end of that year, realizing, A, I, I don't live on site. I'm not a medical professional. And it's not the only thing I'm doing. And you know, I was doing it voluntarily. And I decided to, to not follow through on trying to solve the hepatitis issue. I feel like I left an entire population to die. And it was a horrific feeling knowing that I was powerless to fix something. And a couple of years later, I get this email from Beto and he says, I want you to tell our story to the world. And I said, yes, immediately. Again, did not know what it was going to become. And I realized over the course of time, A, he knew more about my capabilities than I did in that moment. He trusted me. And when I asked him, why me? Why not other people who have more means? I mean, yes, I have the family name, but I am one independent filmmaker. I don't have access to funds or big network. And he said, because you have a sensitivity I haven't seen in other journalists. 
And what happened in that moment for me, A, is, is belief in myself and my ability to do this. And over the course of the years it took to film, because it took three years to film, and it took just as many years to, to, to get completed, and then a few more to get distributed, is that my conviction was tested over and over again in my ability to do this. And I feel that I had to prove that I was worthy of telling this story, that I was worthy of being asked for help and that I was the right person to do this. You know, not to be melodramatic at all, but I think sometimes when, when something is so tough and you keep getting knocked down, because I got knocked down quite a lot through this project for different reasons, when you stand back up, you stand back up stronger. And, and I feel that this was part of my initiation rights to what's next. Well, let's talk about sort of the big picture in terms of the, the indigenous peoples of the Valle do Jovari and how the government of Brazil is impacting. There is a there are a couple of different organizations that have a direct impact on these people. Uh, do we want to talk about that in terms of sort of setting up the dynamic of the society yeah. and and Funai? How how do they? <laughs> So, yeah, how do they impact what's happening? In so I, can, I can talk a little bit about it. The, the, the system is quite complex in terms of, of when it comes to indigenous health and indigenous rights and indigenous governance and indigenous land. So the, the land is designated um, for indigenous people, but it doesn't belong to them. And so they have the rights to the surface of the land. It's much like in the United States. Unfortunately, what we're not seeing is that this is their land, period. That this is not for anybody on the outside to say, oh, we allow you to live here. Right. But let me not go back to, to that huge issue. Right. In terms of the organization of the way the government works is that you have the indigenous branch of government, which is Funai. And Funai is responsible for the designation and governance of indigenous land. So making sure that things that are set in place in terms of laws are, are actually followed through in terms of indigenous protection, in terms of the guards around indigenous land, etc. Sizai is used to be housed under Funai, and Sizai is responsible for the health care of indigenous peoples. It is now housed in the health department of the government, specifically for indigenous peoples. So it's not um, under it's not under Funai. It's, it's no it's longer a, under Funai. No, yeah, right. no longer. When I was filming it was. Right. And when I was filming important. it was actually it was actually called Funaza. They closed it, reopened under Sezai, and then moved it. This is important because it introduces a whole bunch of other political and financial dynamics into the into the situation, right? Yeah. The government essentially makes those decisions about funding and where the funding goes and who gets elected to lead these organizations. What you have is an underfunded system for indigenous peoples. And, and that is a direct assault on their rights and their well-being. And it's intentional. Yeah. And at a time when you're just describing the rates for malaria and hepatitis are off the charts. This is literally, yeah. whether or not it's literally genocidal, it certainly is practically gen genocidal. We, uh, in psychology, there's a term passive aggressive, right? Right. right? Still aggressive. Not bringing health care is still letting people die. But however it is that you want to formulate it, there's a violent option and there's a passive option, but the outcomes. And, and I, not to make this about the United States, but there certainly feels like there are echoes of our own relationship to indigenous people. And, 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 and not, and this is not an isolated incident between Brazil, indigenous people and America and indigenous people. This is something of, of phenomena around the world where indigenous people are treated this way. 
which yeah. is amazing to me. I mean, of all the people and why this is so important is because as you describe and as we see in the film, Tribes on the Edge, these are the guardians. These are the people who ensure the stability and health of these incredibly important ecosystems. Mm -hmm. Would you mind spending a minute or two to describe just how important these are to our to our planet? Sure. I mean, there's something that, that I think kind of uh, two points that'll outline it pretty, pretty easily and pretty quickly. <laughs> Um, one, the Amazon provides 20% of the world's oxygen. It's kind of nice. So I always encourage whether it's, you know, a, a podcast or, or an interview or during a conference, I say, okay, take five breaths, but hold that last one. Imagine living without it. Not possible, right? You can skip a meal you can skip water for a bit. You cannot skip breathing. Where there are indigenous people, there's no deforestation. If their land is properly governed by them, there's no deforestation. It's all, it's all sustainable harvesting, right? There's actually better rates of environmental protection on indigenous land than there is on conservation land. So the presence of people is actually more beneficial to the land than we ever thought because they are the natural guardians, as you said. So we, we need to look at that very clearly. We want to breathe. They protect the land. They are actually, by simply existing, doing a service to the planet. What is with our thinking that, that one plus one doesn't actually add to two in our minds? I don't know. Well, let, let me just, I'll say it another way. Every fifth breath, when you get to the end of that fifth breath, say thank you to, to the Javari Valley and to the people to the people who take care of it and in Brazil as well, the rainforest in Brazil. So yes, thank you. I just wanted for people to understand sort of the frame of all of this. There are huge economic interests involved here. Uh, we have seen a pattern of this behavior under the current president of Brazil, Bolsonaro. But again, I'm not to single him out. Yes, we should. We should be talking about what's happening in his administration. But this is a worldwide problem. This is yeah. something that's happening in Indonesia, Malaysia. It's happening in Africa. It's no, happening. happening in America. Yeah, it, yes. And it all over basically more meat, more beef, and palm oil. The operative word in all of that is more. We have become a society of consumers. I mean, there's one lesson that I learned, you know, a long time ago in terms of sustainability. But again, um, interviewing an indigenous chief, and I said, how do you live sustainably in your environment? And he looked at me like, what do you, I don't understand your question. And I define sustainability just as, you know, the balance in your ecosystem. And still he looked at me, fair enough. And he said, well, when I cut a tree to make a quinoa, I plant one. And when I go hunting, I only kill what I need for my family. Is that what you're asking me? And I just kind of stopped in my tracks and I, I realized, you know, in our amazing ability to create, we have created a system that is much more complex, right? We, we live in buildings and all of a sudden we need, we need heating and we need uh, air conditioning in the summer. And we, oh, wait, but I want strawberries in winter. Oh, and I, so all of a sudden, like everything is available to us because we're brilliant, right? But we have come back full circle. We've just complicated our thinking around it. We're, we call it lead certified. We call it sustainable agriculture. We call it organic farming, what, whatever words and complex thinking go back to the very basic thing. If we don't live in harmony with nature, we will disappear. I'm all for protecting the environment and, and species. This is what I do. But you can put the human at the center of the environmental equation and say, if that goes, so do we. So if we want to survive, our best interest is to create an equilibrium. Let's yeah. start thinking smartly about what we consume. 
we can't all go out there and quote, save the planet. I mean, I had a friend who said to me, I'm, I'm so glad you're out there saving the planet. I was like, oh no, you can't get away with that. No way. Uh, <laughs> I'm doing my part. And, but my part is on a daily basis because it is what I do. But everybody can have their gestures. Find your passion. Doesn't have to be the Amazon. Doesn't have to be indigenous people. But find your passion and do that thing every day. That's how we solve this. Because you're going to have CEOs doing it and they're going to influence their corporation. You're going to have everyday citizens doing it. You're going to have teachers teaching kids and kids teaching their parents. It has to. It has to happen. We're talking with the director of this terrific documentary film called tribes on the edge and people can find out more about the film and how they can and how we can watch it by going to tribes on the edge.com and there's also a whole slew of organizations that not only are you a part of the foundations that you head up but also other organizations other ways in which you can find out more about this and also become part of the solution in order to, to do that. So tribesontheedge.com is a great place. I b- believe is a great place to start. Would that be fair? It's a good place to start. Yeah, it will be available on uh, SVOD on February 2nd. Um, you can pre-order on iTunes. It will be on Amazon and a whole slew of other uh, channels. Um, so February 2nd, yeah, please go out there, support it. Um, any any return on, our, uh, on the sales will go right back into the project because we're creating education program. And we're going back to the Javari to support the indigenous people there with a livelihoods program and a biodiversity analysis. Well, Celine Cousteau, there's one other thing, one other observation I want to make about what your, your earlier comment, and that is, I will say to people, look, the planet will survive. Hmm. As long as it keeps spinning around the sun and there's a little bit of water here, this planet will continue to exist. Whether or not it will be able to sustain us, the highest form of life on the food chain here is is an open question at this point. So if you care about that idea of living and surviving in a world that uh, has been pretty good to you, this is something that you definitely need to be more involved in trying to figure out. Let's talk about Beto and let's talk about just sort of the tribes. One of the the things that you do in the film is you visit five different tribes over the course of the film. You only go where you're basically invited. Tell us sort of the parameters of this journey that you embarked upon. First of all, Beto being from the Marugo tribe is, you know, he's my my guide in, in the how-to because he's, he's from there. And, and I think it's always really, really important whether you're dealing with people or animals, you deal with the experts and, and they guide you in, in how to behave and what to do. So yeah, we only went when, where we were invited and, and it did happen once we had been invited into a village and when we arrived, they changed their minds and escorted us away with machetes and that's okay. And I say that with a smile because we're all, we're all here, but circumstances happened and mi- there was misunderstandings it had nothing to do with us, but all outsiders are typically viewed as the same. So we get kind of lumped. So if there's a problem with one area, we kind of all get escorted out, but I never, um, I've never felt in danger there. We've encountered danger, but I never felt that it was hostile towards us specifically. We were able to visit several different villages from several different tribal groups. We were not able to go to all villages because the area is the size of Portugal and it's jungle. So we had to be a bit selective. And again, we relied on our guides for that. The distances are massive. You have to imagine 85,000 square kilometers of jungle that's the size of Portugal or Austria sides of the state of Maine, maybe that's a, a good relevance. And you can only really travel through the rivers. 
and you depend on the rainfall to have the river high enough. And we almost got stuck. And I mean, there's all, there's wonderful stories. And then I don't actually guide them in what they do or say. So I don't ask them to put on a ritual. I don't ask them to go harvest. I don't, we were there, we're observers midday. I remember the, we were in the middle of like eating our lunch, hottest time, obviously of the day. And all of a sudden I see the women with baskets take off into the forest. And I was like, get up, grab cameras, go. <laughs> so off we trot and, and we film what we film. And there's, there's art in setting the scene and there's art in being uh, an observer. And I'm, I'm the latter. You don't always get the best shots, but you do get authenticity and that matters. I do want to talk about your crew. Barbara Arisi, she's terrific. She's an important part of the film and sort of telling she's an anthropologist and sort of setting up the stories behind the story, if you will. And then the crew just felt like it was a real team effort. Just felt like this was a very close knit group of people that you 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 embarked on this journey with. But we want to talk about Barbara or anyone else who was part of this. Barbara had lived with the Matisse tribe for over a year. And so, you know, specifically with the Matisse, she was she was somebody that we relied on for um, her her anthropological knowledge and her translation because she can speak their language as well. So that's, you know, when she came with us and she was helping translate, obviously. I understand most Portuguese when it's spoken as somebody's second language. So I, I could get by pretty decently, but she was uh, she was key in, in our ability to communicate with the Matisse. Barbara came with us on one expedition, um, specifically to the Matisse people. And that was really key for us to have somebody who had expertise in, in their culture, their language, and their ways. And it was also great for her to return because she hadn't been back in a while. So it was kind of a reunion of sorts for her. The rest of the team are people that I've known for quite a while. Matt Ferraro is somebody that I've been on expedition with in my father's expeditions for years. Michael Clark is a, is a dear friend, an amazing photographer. Um, he came with us on two expeditions. Um, Chapkin is my partner and he was our second camera. We had Jeremy Collins, who's an artist who I met because of this project. It was important for me to have a nonverbal communication available and to have drawings as, as part of our artistic rendering of the story. And you do, I say it in the film, you count on them in life and death. And it's not just, we had an awesome team. You know, if, if you have a problem, you have to be able to to know that they've got your back. And I dive with, with uh, three of the crew members. It's the same thing underwater. You, you have to know who you're diving with because we get into, you know, certain situations are not always optimum. They make the project happen and they go way beyond in terms of the support for, for this film. I mean, Chapkin was doing a lot of behind the scenes things, a lot of the accounting, a lot of the, the planning, you know, the nitty gritty stuff you'll never see. And that not really exciting for people to talk about, but the film doesn't get made without it. So it's key. Well, and also there are some very practical considerations involved as well. There were times during the course of making this film, especially when it relates to Barbara, where there were some very dangerous situations where that crew uh, was the difference between life and death. We see that in the film. And I just, again, I just feel like there's a there's so much humanity in this film, just not only the opportunity to meet the people in these different, of these different communities, but the opportunity to see the, the relationship, the interaction, and then you see your own crew and how, how that all, it all fits into this, the bigger picture of the sort of community of, of people and how yeah. we're interrelated. We depend on one another, whether we acknowledge it or not, we do. And yeah. how important. And no one does anything alone. 
You know, this is one of the things, I didn't want to be in front of the camera for this film at all. I, I really was opposed to it. Uh, my mentors, my editor, other filmmakers were really pushing me to be in front of the camera to, to make it more relevant for the audience to, to, because they're coming with me. And in doing that, I also felt it was important to show our team because you said it, it's community. And I feel that whether we're representing it through the, the crew that was there or through the indigenous people, we count on each other to get through it all. And yeah, there was a really a dire situation with Barbara. Those who will see the film will understand what it's about. We had to make quick decisions, but it wasn't just our crew that enabled us to have a positive outcome. It was the, the local Sithai healthcare workers who um, on site really pulled it off and were able to um, help us get her out safely. And that brings uh, to mind another really important part of the film, the telling of the story, is how deprived resources these people are. And part of this perception and or reality that they're essentially being starved out. They're being forced off the land by virtue of just a lack of any sort of support from the government, from these agencies. Uh, certainly not enough support, let's put it that way. Maybe no support is too strong, but nonetheless, the support they're getting isn't enough. And how so little resources are being spread out among so many people. You mentioned, I think there's a total of about 7,000 people in this region. One of the things there you- are, but let me just clarify that um, of those 7,000 people, about 2,000 of them are uncontacted. There so, you go. Yeah. yeah. So we don't we don't approach anywhere where we think that there are uncontacted people. We have to go through uncontacted territory at one point, and we are by law we cannot film or stop. So you won't see any footage. I mean, the only thing you'd see probably is jungle from our boat. But you know, we we are not there to be sensational. So we have to we definitely respect that because a simple cold or a flu could wipe out half to all of their population if we were to to misstep. The people that we do see in the film that you that you spend time with, these uh, malaria and, and hepatitis um, rates are off the charts. People are dying. People are losing limbs. There are all kinds of horrible things that are happening. And then you see the very meager amount of medical supplies and also personnel there to help take and care not of the these right people. medical supplies. I mean, they have a lot. That's you know, they have a lot of one medication that they may or may not need, and not enough of another. Anti-venom, for example, it's not something that was, um, you know, venomous snakes weren't brought in by outsiders, but anti-venom exists in powder form just over the border in Colombia. It doesn't have to be refrigerated, but the government doesn't supply that version. They, they will only supply the version that has to be refrigerated. Well, I don't know if you've been to the jungle before where there's no electricity, but <laughs> it certainly isn't a refrigerator. So it goes to show, and, and the healthcare workers themselves are putting their own lives at risk. The ones who are on the ground I mean, the, the, the Funai workers and the Sazai workers are doing everything they can on the ground. It's amazing with such little support what they can do. They're buying their own meds and they're buying their own anti-venom. And if somebody gets bitten by a snake, they supply it. So yeah. it's, it, it's one of those things I, I wanted to humanize them too, because it's, it's not everybody that works for the government that's bad. There are amazing people who are, who are doing everything they can on the ground and you have to support and celebrate them too. I'm going to ask you a philosophical question. Maybe it's an unanswerable question regarding these people. With the advent of solar power and different uh, alternative energy sources, wind, geothermal, is there a balance to be found in terms of providing sort of the more basic amenities of civilization to these people without them losing their their role as guardians of this 
region of the world, this very vastly important part of the world? It's um, it, it's a great question. It is it is a complex one. I, I can't answer it simply, but what I do know is that it's not fully up to us. And what I have learned is there they exist in complete duality. We can't romanticize the indigenous person in the jungle living the way they always have. And I'll, and I'll give you the simple answer that was given to me when I asked, well, why do you want to wear clothes? And Beto looked at me and he goes, are you kidding? It's like, do you know how hard it is to live in the jungle naked with all those insects? And I just stopped and I was like, okay, I'm acting like a total foreigner. I'm acting like a total like Westerner. Let me just rewind for a second. So you walk into a village and, and you think you're going to get what you call this like authentic village life. And you do get that. But then the women are wearing little cloth skirts and they're wearing bras because Western women do. And the men are wearing shorts because it's more comfortable because it covers their genitalia from all the insects, right? And then you walk a little bit further and there's a satellite dish and you're like, you don't have electricity. What do you need a satellite dish for? And you realize there's a generator that runs for about an hour every night that powers the one light bulb in this massive maloka, the chief's hut. And then at some point in the night during that hour, you hear house music on the other side of the village. Your whole perception of what this place is just got. And as I'm leaving the village, somebody looks at me and goes, Celine, você tem Facebook? Celine, do you have Facebook? And I'm like, really? Really? <laughs> so here's the lesson for me. A, do never walk anywhere with any assumption. Know that you have your own ideas of like what you're going to see, but accept it for what it is. And they live in this complete duality where they want to preserve their culture. They want to preserve their ways. They want to make the decisions for self-governance, for economic independence on their own for themselves. But because of the invasion of outsiders dating back to the 16th century, they don't have a choice but to also exist in our world. So finding the balance between these two things is really complex for them and complex for us to understand. When I say, what do you need? The answer is what I should be listening to, not my own apprehensions or desires of what they need. And I've said no before. I mean, I was asked when I was first negotiating to bring the team in in 2007, they gave me this massive long list that I reported back. And I, and I said, I, I said, no, I, no, we're not coming. And I said, I'm not telling you, you can't have these things. I'm saying, I, this is just not what we're able to provide. They wanted a satellite dish. They wanted a television, three barrels of oil. They wanted bullets for the shotguns. They wanted uh, three outboard motors and 5,000 US dollars. And we're like a tiny little nonprofit. This wasn't my production. This was a, a previous one. And I didn't say no, because I don't agree with them. I said, no, because I can't provide that. And what came out of it was something much more beautiful is that we attended a conference of the indigenous peoples and thus began the longer story of my relationship with this place. If I'm not mistaken, malaria is a waterborne disease or at least transmittable or I, I don't think I'm a type. Yeah, so malaria is through mosquitoes and it came- Well, because the standing water, mosquitoes thrive. That's where they, I guess- They yeah. thrive because of standing water, exactly. And then if you have an infected person and a mosquito bites that infected person, it can infect the next person that it bites. That's how mosquito, that's how malaria gets transmitted. Hepatitis depends if it's hepatitis A, B, C, or Delta. It's either saliva or blood, body fluids or water. And once it gets into the system, you have to remember that these are also polygamous societies. The women will, if there's not enough women in the other village, the women will go from one village to the other. Very, very basically speaking. It's, yeah, it's quite complex. 
It is. It, well, there, as you describe it, I'm thinking, I'm just going to throw out some, you know, Western centric, you know, solution, but I was thinking, you know, some solar power and some water purification yeah. and, you know, some real basic sort of things would have a huge difference. Well, maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't. I don't know. We, we've looked at solar power to be able to power refrigerators to hold vaccinations for hepatitis so yeah. that they could do a continuous, a continuous program. And we actually, there was a, a gentleman interested in it. The, the funding behind it is quite complex. The maintenance of these systems is quite complex. So that was one of the barriers. And then our ability to get the project accepted was yeah. another one. Drone deliveries. I mean, why not use drones to deliver yeah, back? Well, see, there you go. Yeah. And I think the emerging battery technology, renewable batteries even, are, are going to have a huge impact all around the world. And I'm, I'm hoping for a, for a Star Trek world where... They lived in a world without money. Somehow, some way, Gene Rottenberry figured out, you know what? If we can figure out a way to live without actually having money involved, we might make it. We might actually be able to make a, make a go of it. So, Gene Roddenberry, thank you for that. Listen, this has been a blast. Thank you so much. Thank uh, you for thank the you. film. Yeah, thank you for the film. The film is called Tribes on the Edge. And we have been talking with the director, producer, and co-writer of the film. And that would be Celine Cousteau. Thank you so very much for your time and for the film. And I know you're working on all kinds of stuff. I looked at your resume and you have a remarkable filmology here of projects you've been working on to bring attention to all these different uh, issues and the very important issues. Believe me, this is not liberal speak here. This part of the world is so incredibly important to our survival that I don't think it can be overstated. So... No, and I and I hope that um, you know when people see the film that they will be inspired to to do something more to think about their connection with this place because that's what they would want. And in in Beto's own words, when somebody asked him what can we do for you, he said, "Keep telling the story." There you so go. So I'm going to share that. So Tribes on the Edge, uh, February second, iTunes and Amazon. Keep telling the story, as Beto said. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Tribesontheedge.com, and then as I said, you from there you can go into a whole a lot of other um, agencies, foundations, ways to help, ways to promote a healthy world. Thank you so much, Celine Costello, for My being pleasure. here. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Music